coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Canadian election is virtually a dead heat now. How worried are we about the fourth wave? G7 leaders are meeting in regard to Afghanistan. And we've lost Rolling Stone drummer Charlie Watts. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Are you ready? Sure. Are you ready? The mic's on, honey. Okay. Don't sound so thrilled. (laughs) I'm Eileen Thompson, Scott's wife. Kirk can't be here in person because he's at Canada's Wonderland. Come on. Hmm, Wonder. Wonderland or Dad's show? Are we surprised he's not here? Not. (sighs) You forgot the last part. Now... Here's Scott Thompson! Perfect. Thank you, honey bunny. All right. I don't think we're supposed to hug with a mic on. Uh, it is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers getting back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson show between the rails. Jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots and lots of polling coming out and, uh, including, uh, uh, a poll from Ipsos, uh, which was commissioned by Global talking about the leaders, where they are and how things have changed. Uh, in the first week of this election campaign compared to uh, before the election was called. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos, and is with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. So uh, what is the difference between now and what before the election was called? Uh, there was a five-point lead there for the Liberals. What happened? Yeah, it's evaporated. It's now a one-point lead, which... Uh, Anybody who follows polling knows is a statistical tie between the Conservatives and the uh, the Liberals. 33 for the Liberals, 32 for the Conservatives, with the NDP at 21%. Uh, clearly, uh, the big problem is Ontario. Just last week, the Liberals had an eight-point lead in the seat-rich province, of course, where we are. Uh, and now it's actually the Tories who are up by four. That is big problems for the Liberals because it is very difficult to remain in power without winning uh, a good chunk of the seats here at home. What what has changed here? Is it the fact that uh, people are are um, don't want an election? We all know it was called by the Prime Minister at this time. Is it now we're not as focused on the uh, the pandemic, but the recovery from it? What where did those um, what happened? What what would have been yeah, the I reason for those, people's discomfort? Those are definitely uh, 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 logical answers. Um, I think what's happening here is that, you know, the election was called. People didn't want it, but they were given the opportunity for the prime minister to outline his case, why we need it uh, and, and, and his plan for, for the way forward. But in fact, it actually looks like the opposition parties might have been more ready for the election than the liberal parties seem to be more organized. The other parties have come out with uh, the conservatives released a full platform. The liberals haven't. Uh, the Conservatives went to Quebec and, and O'Toole said, here's the contract that I propose with the province. And, uh, you know, like it or hate it, he got attention. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, doesn't seem to be able to clearly articulate why there is a need for the election or to clearly articulate liberal policy in, in, a, in a number of different areas. And so they're looking a little bit listless. And, uh, and, and that is definitely being reflected in the, uh, in the horse race totals, which uh, is giving momentum to the Tories at the moment.
Uh, found it interesting, uh, the comment made by uh, Daryl Bricker, your CEO for Ipsos, uh, in the Global article, uh, saying that uh, Canada is now brittle. It was an interesting choice of words. We now have a race. Yeah, we do. Uh, the the sort of the, the contract or the understanding that that Canadians have with with the prime minister is is interesting because, uh, you know, they they they've been approving of his performance uh, up until now. A majority have approved. It's dropped six points in the last week, but it's been very tepid. Only ten percent of of Canadians strongly approve of the prime minister, so they've been willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But as Daryl said, it's very brittle, it's very thin, uh, and uh, we're seeing now some substantial movement, and 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 Canadians are considering whether or not they want to continue to support the prime minister, or whether they're going to move their vote to another party. The NDP gaining a little bit of momentum seems to be everybody's second choice. You know, conservatives can't fathom voting for the prime minister, so they're looking at the NDP. Uh, Liberals can't fathom voting for the Tories, so they're also looking at the NDP. And I think what what many were seeing as as sort of a whole hum election at the outset, where things hadn't changed for a couple of months, are now re-engaging and saying, "Oh, this is more interesting than we anticipated." I might lean in a little bit, do a little bit more research, and uh, and consider my options. Many uh, accuse the prime minister of spending too much time on Ontario and Quebec and kind of ignoring uh, everyone else, obviously because they're the strongholds. Are you surprised we're seeing fragmentation in Ontario? Uh, well, I, I'm surprised to see the the amount of movement that we have in the in the last week. I mean, clearly the prime minister is probably going to have to spend even more time here than than he anticipated. But you know, the bloc are knocking in in Quebec, and in fact, the Conservatives are now at about 20 percent support in Quebec, which is enough to give uh, the bloc and the Liberals a hard time in the in sort of the Quebec City region, the eastern townships. But the other place where the prime minister needs to focus his attention is in British Columbia. Uh, at the moment, yeah. it's a three way race: the the, the Liberals and the and the Conservatives are roughly tied, but the NDP are nipping at their heels. Uh, there's a reasonable amount of, of seats to be had there. there. There's a lot of seats in place. So the Prime Minister is going to be on an airplane an awful lot, crisscrossing this this country to, ch- to try to shore up support that has uh, you know, been tenuous over the last uh, couple of months, but still on his side. And, and, and now we're seeing that, uh, that starting to break. And, and uh, I would say in week one of the campaign, it is advantage Conservatives. Uh, we uh, many were asking why, what the reasons were for having an election. What is going to change? And I remember during the first few days, my goodness, we were talking about mandatory uh, vaccination, and then I think the other issue was abortion again. And I'm thinking, holy yeah. smokes, is this why we're having an election to discuss these <laughs> issues? Uh, nowhere to be found uh, the, the the big burning issue of climate change that everybody thinks or says is the number one issue. But what has surprised me here, Sean, is housing has. Has all of a sudden vaulted to the be- to the to the forefront, and even today, as I'm watching out of the corner of my eye, uh, Greens, NDP on today, all talking housing. They've all now announced some sort of uh, housing program, and the Prime Minister uh, doing the same today as well. Yeah, so housing is is I guess the manifestation of of one of the top five issues that that, uh, that Canadians have on their mind, and that's affordability. I mean, affordability really starts with your home, right? It's your single biggest uh, investment if you're buying or renting. Rental uh, is is usually the single biggest expense you have uh, uh, if you don't own. So uh, clearly, the leaders are coming out and saying, "Well, this is what I'm going to do to address affordability. It starts with with housing. We want to make sure that first time home buyers uh, are still able to get into the market." 
And and housing, uh, even though it, you know it may be the fourth or fifth most important issue overall, really climbs the ladder for young people. So it, it's a it's a clear play for that uh, sort of millennial and maybe even Gen Gen Z vote uh, because it's an issue that really matters to them. They're looking at skyrocketing housing prices in in Toronto and Hamilton and Kitchener and other places and saying, how am I ever going to be able to afford? So the parties are trying to uh, to address that. You know, I don't think it's going to be the you know defining uh, you know wedge issue or ballot box question of the campaign. Uh, more of a kind of a check mark that uh, yes, this party is has got a, at least a plan. Uh, but uh, in the absence of of a of that wedge issue, uh, it's a good place to start. The Tories, uh, the Liberals, rather, I think were hoping that it was going to be vaccine passports, but. It just doesn't seem to be the thing that people are latching on to as the, as the clear differentiator among the parties. Plus, as we break them all down, Sean, we understand that they're all basically the saying the same thing because there's a charter of rights in this country, and that is vaccinations are mandatory except for these exemptions. I mean, they're both, everybody's saying the same thing. We're seeing uh, this all play out. I mean, you know, people will use, well, kids in school, well, everybody... Uh, you know, most of them are, and hopefully we all do get vaccinated, but there's always that, you know, segment of the population that won't, and they're everywhere. And it, it appears they're trying to make it a wedge issue when the solution is the same all the way across the board, no matter what your political party is. Yeah, in order for it to be a wedge issue, there needs to yeah. to be a you know a substantial difference in in policies. You know that's why uh, liberals like to uh, bring up uh, abortion, uh, for example, because they can create a, a wedge between uh, the Tory, you know, perceived wedge really between the Tory position and and and, and liberals. Now, one of the smart things O'Toole did in, in in week one of the campaign was go to Quebec, where you know this is always on the mind of of, of people and saying, look, I am pro-choice. You know, and and sort of cut the liberals off at their knees because uh, he's come out. He said this position is going to be consistent about it, and uh, he's essentially prevented it from being a uh, a wedge issue. So now the liberals have to go and look for something else. It's not abortion. It's not uh, vaccines. So what is it going to be? Uh, they're still looking, and uh, you know, if they can find one, you know, they may have a chance of, of regaining some momentum. But in the absence of that, uh, they're going to look uh, a little listless and uh, have a hard time explaining why they called this election. Does the abortion issue still resonate with Canadians? Again, I rolled my eyes when I when you know I, I heard this come up again. I'm old enough to remember all of this back in the 70s and the Morgenthaler yeah. case and all of that. And there's certainly been plenty of governments of both stripes since all of that happened. How come this keeps resonating? How come uh, the Liberals can constantly bring out this water balloon and keep tossing it? Yeah, uh, it, it's a good question. So from a public opinion standpoint, we've moved beyond uh, abortion. Yeah. Uh, you know, vast majorities of Canadians support it. Um, you know, not everybody. And the not everybody tends to be concentrated in the sort of more, uh, you know, socially uh, conservative uh, wing of the, of the Conservative Party. Aaron O'Toole is trying to you know, distance himself from that particular element. But the, the classic uh, sort of conservative question is, how much can I move towards the center without alienating that that right uh, base that they need in order to get elected? You know, you push them too far and they leave. That's why you get reform in, in Canadian Alliance. So, um, you know, O'Toole, again, is, is, is trying to find that balance. But what we're seeing in our polling is that 
uh, conservative vote is is a little bit softer. Uh, 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 maybe conservatives not quite as thrilled with O'Toole, or at least some some within the Conservative Party not quite as thrilled with O'Toole because he's moving a little bit uh, too far to the center, uh, according to their to their point of view. So, uh, you know, what what gets you top line votes and people saying, yeah, I might vote for them, doesn't necessarily translate to the ballot box because they actually have to go out and be you know enthusiastic enough about you to cast their ballot. Uh, it was interesting you bring that up because uh, it was just today uh, during his news conference, uh, O'Toole was questioned on that by one of the reporters saying, you know, your 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 policies seem to be shifting more to the center now. Yep. Uh, that seems to be evident even to the reporters that are asking him questions. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it may get you more consideration, but may not get you more votes. I mean, right. ultimately, the key to winning election is to get your core supporters out. Uh, and uh, if, they, uh, if they're if they not uh, feeling enthusiastic about you, they might stay home. Normally, the Tories have a ballot box bonus, meaning that they're supported by uh, people who are most likely to go out and vote, and they can count on them time in and time out. Um, what we have not seen uh, in our polling thus far is a ballot box bonus for the Conservatives. They seem to be a little less enthusiastic than they normally are. Now, that could have been based on the misconception that the election was over before it began and that they didn't have a chance of winning. Now we're seeing, it's not just the Ipsos poll, we've seen a couple others saying, oh, this is a this is a horse race, it's anybody's game, and nothing motivates your supporters like a close race where they think that their vote may actually matter. So if, if I'm looking into my crystal ball, I may see actually conservatives getting a little bit more enthusiastic about this election campaign than they were at the start, maybe a little bit more likely now to consider going out and voting. Uh, what about the issues of, for example, Afghanistan, that story obviously breaking uh, in the middle of this election, also the pandemic and chatter about modeling on the horizon about the fourth wave? Uh, again, this looks like it'll all come to a head about the time we're all heading to a poll. Yeah, there seems to be a confluence of events here, many of which are kind of outside of the control of the uh, of the prime minister. To what extent will Afghanistan hurt? I, you know, I, I don't know what the, what the government could be doing, you know, much differently on, on that on that file. It yeah. may be another annoyance for people if they're already feeling annoyed with the prime minister, kind of a piling on of, of grievances, so so to speak. Um, with with the, with the fourth wave, um, I mean, clearly the prime minister's approval ratings have sort of ebbed and flowed with. Uh, not just case counts, but the rollout of the vaccine. Uh, when it, it, uh, late last year, when it became clear that we weren't able to produce vaccines in Canada, uh, the approval ratings dropped. Uh, they were they they were low during the slow initial rollout, but really started to get quite strong as 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 things uh, started to tick along. Now in the fourth wave, I think we're going to see approval ratings start to drop again. So it, it could be a challenge for the prime minister uh, to, to, to stand on, on those laurels and credentials if we're in the thick of it in the middle of uh, September. Sean Simpson with us, vice president of Ipsos. New polling out says uh, it's a horse race when it comes to the federal election. Sean, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Here's today's daily commentary. The Justin Trudeau liberals got caught in their own net this week when social media platform Twitter threw up a red flag and deemed a post by Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland as manipulated media. This from the person who has been pegged in some circles to replace JT. Justin Trudeau defended the manipulative editing of Aaron O'Toole in his party's video, telling them to watch the entire video. 
which you got to think that's exactly what the conservatives want. It's one thing to paint an unflattering picture of your opponent. It's another to take the answer to a question and then edit it to say something different or the opposite, and thus raising the ire of the social media giant's regulators. The irony here is it's the liberals that are constantly hammering the right for misinformation and have accused the conservatives of using American-style politics up here and have introduced legislation to police the Internet against this sort of manipulating behavior that they have now been charged with. However, it's only the Liberal Party who have been flagged by Twitter for manipulating media, just like Donald Trump. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, uh, lots to talk about when we bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. Changes in the polls, they're leveling out, suggesting we now have a horse race. Uh, Also, housing. Uh, jetting to the top of the agenda in this campaign. Uh, to talk more, here's Henry Jasek, political science, McMaster University. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well, and so the weather's hot, and so's the election race. <laughs> there you go. Who would have thunk? Uh, yeah. Heading into this, heading into this, uh, liberals had like a five-point lead, which is mm-hmm. why they called the election when they did, uh, hoping for a majority. What happens? What happened in the first week here? Well, I think there's a whole bunch of things happened. Uh, uh, first of all, I think the, the liberals panicked, as I, as I said last week on the show, that uh, I think the plan was for them to call the election after uh, Labor Day and have it uh, on uh, somewhere in October, maybe the latter part of October. Uh, as a matter of fact, the premier said that, the prime minister said that he was not going to have an election um, during the summer. He said that a few times earlier in the summer. And so uh, that, but he he panicked, I think, because he was worried about the fourth wave, of, and the, he couldn't announce that the virus was uh, beaten. As a matter of fact, uh, the, it looked like it was gathering stream, steam with this uh, new variant, uh, with cases. And so he he panicked, called the election, and uh, people were annoyed. And uh, then the opposition party started saying, "Well, this is a, an unnecessary election." And I think Jagmeet Singh did the had the best language that affected people. Uh, saying that this was a selfish election, that he was that he was that Trudeau was being selfish and uh, shouldn't do it, and so that and so then we started, so that that's what happened right at right at the time that he called the election, or just a day or two after. And now he's been hit with another pr- problem, probably un- certainly unforeseen, and that's the military problem in mm. Afghanistan. Uh, that uh, you know the um, Canadians are worried about whether uh, there are maybe some still Canadians in Afghanistan that need to be come out, and or there's uh, people who helped us there that need to come out. They sh- and their view is they should have come out before instead of the government waiting so long to take them out. And uh, I think this is going to this is causing him a problem, and and helps the conservatives. It's it's interesting that uh, the uh, conservative leader is a former military person, a military Mm -hmm. officer, and I think this is just really lucky for him. Here we have a military crisis in Afghanistan affecting, uh, in a certain way, Canada, and the conservatives have somebody who has, you know, military credentials. Uh, Leger poll out today, uh, 69%, almost 7 out of 10, uh, think the prime minister should have waited until next year. Uh, to call all an election, twenty only twenty percent thinking this was a good idea. Is this going to come back to bite him? Many thought that once the campaign started, that uh, this would fall by the wayside. However, there doesn't seem to be any dominant issues introduced by the prime minister for a reason for this election. So, is that what people are falling back to? 
Well, I certainly think, you know, the usual thing is that it does fade when people complain about having an election early, but, but not always. And I think uh, I mentioned uh, again last week that uh, we have had cases uh, where the uh, leader uh, called an election and uh, it came back and really uh, bit him. And then one of which, of course, was in Ontario in 1990 when Peterson called an early election and uh, <laughs> Everybody was shocked when uh, Bob Ray, the leader of the NDP at the time, got a big majority. So I'm not saying that's going to happen this time, but there's always a potential where people say, "No, we don't. It is wrong to have an election." And uh, this this may very well be one that's an issue that's going to stick around with him. But I think it's it's more than this, more more than just this alone. I also think that it's the, uh, the calling it during the summer. I think that was a ba- big mistake when he had promised it. Uh, not, not to do that, and and the fact that uh, he's you know we're still fighting the virus and uh, he can't declare a victory and this has just unnerved him, and so we start to and so we start to see mistakes being made and of course you talked about you know the message that went out from the deputy uh, prime minister, uh, she you know that is that that it was really ill advised uh, but I did I do think that's a sign of panic they she probably they probably saw this that the conservatives and the conservative leader was getting uh, more favorable attention, and uh, they decided to go after him, try to nip it in the bud, and they, they overreached themselves. Um, yeah, and I think the problem that they got into there was trying to change an answer. It's one thing to try to paint your opponent as something else or, or, or even take shots at the character, but when you start changing facts around uh, that's when you seem to really get into hot water uh, many were surprised this tweet came from uh, the deputy prime minister christia freeland who a lot of people have a tremendous amount of respect for um what does this do for her brand considering many think she'll take over from jt when he steps down yeah you know the i just think generally i mean my general view is that it is always dangerous for a, a political leader, especially a top political leader, to really engage in very negative attacks. I mean, if you're going to have, you know, you could, you, if you have na- major attacks that are done by somebody else in the party or in your ads, uh, you know, on radio and television, that's different. Or the, uh, But uh, if you having a, a, a top leader associated with a negative attack, uh, is always, I think generally a mistake because the view is, you know, when you throw a, a, you know, a, a ball of mud at somebody, some of the mud sticks on your hands. And so it's always better not to do that. And <laughs> in, in this particular election, I think the person so far who has uh, really played it very, you know, very, very well by being positive is uh, Jagmeet Singh. And, I mean, I'm just very impressed with, uh, first of all, his statements, his uh, photo opportunities are beautiful, I think. And then his ads, I think, are just fantastic in terms of, you know, having uh, leading with his mother around the dinner table with the whole family. And, uh, mm. and, and, and you know, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a very warm, incredibly warm ad. It makes him really look like a real ordinary human who values his family. I mean, who... And then the way, you know, his mother takes the lead right in the ad right from the very beginning. And, of course, Jagme, as we know, his wife is pregnant, and she mm-hmm. shows up for all his, uh, visibly pregnant, so, and she shows up for all his, uh, his photo ops. So, I mean, he is, I mean, those are, now, of course, these are 
hokey sort of things to do, but I mean, they're they're you know they're they're a substitute for kissing a baby, is having a pregnant wife and a and your mother around saying how wonderful and how how you learn so much from her. I mean, it's it's just with and not to negatively attack things, maybe attack the government on their policy, but never attack people you know personally. Uh, you, you know, you bring up a very valid point. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has excelled, I think, as building his own personal brand in this election and has, has proven to be a very likable and very relaxed guy, even when he's commenting. He's not sticking to his talking points. He's he's elaborating mm-hmm. uh, uh, more. And again, I, you know, uh, I, and as uh, as Jagmeet Singh has done, he, he has uh, managed to keep it focused on the policy and not going after a, a personal attack and not going after, um, you, know, you know, one's character. Although, you know, with the tweet, that was more manipulating the message than it was, you know, negative attacks. But he does seem to see, uh, the NDP leader does seem to see, seem to be much more relaxed this campaign. Oh, yeah, he did. I mean, this is his second time around. And I mean, for most of us, if we have you know, go in and we have to have an experience. Uh, the first time around, we're all worried, and we probably make some mistakes. We're all uptight. Well, the second time you do it, you're more used to it. I mean, we might think of ordinary people having a job interview. Okay, the first job interview, important job interview to you, you're probably sitting on pins and needles, and you're really uptight. Uh, once you do it once, then you do another. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you get used to it, and, and you perform better because now you're more relaxed. And, uh and I think he has a, you know, I know him personally because I know in private, com, you know, in private conversation, he's a very interesting and engaging person and very relaxed and articulate. And so I could see, I mean, I could see more of the Jagmeet Singh this time than the Jagmeet Singh uh, of, of the first uh, the first time he ran the election. I thought it was really his, the one he did the, two years ago. Yeah, it, that wasn't exactly the one I person I knew, but I this one I do recognize this person because he's now really really relaxed and seems to be in control of the situation and you know and just very engaging. And it seems that the and I don't know whether it's a demographic, but the voter that Justin Trudeau was going after or got during his very first campaign. Uh, Singh is just knocking it out of the park. He's, he's, I think he's identifying with that segment of, of the voting population even more so than what the prime minister was back in his heyday of, of sunny ways and selfies. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And if you look at people who seem to be leaving the liberals, uh, uh, coming back to an issue I talked before, it's men over 55 who voted liberal. And I think they're the ones who are probably affected by what's going on in Afghanistan and probably say, well, at this point in time, may I, you know, I'm more, I'm more in, I'm interested in somebody who has a, a military background for this particular issue. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, possible, those people also possibly may be worrying about the economy and, and uh, maybe the amount of money the government has spent that maybe they think they've been spending too much on the pandemic and giving people too much money. Uh, to, 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 you know, over the course of the pandemic. So, it's, yeah, he's, so he's, he's aiming still at, the, at a fairly young audience, you know, certainly people under 55. So what does the prime minister have to do to turn this around? What does Justin Trudeau have to do? It, it's a, it appears now that there's nothing new. There, 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 is there anything new he can pull out of his hat to turn this around? Yeah, the big problem, what he can't do, and what he was so, so good in, in the last few elections, especially the first time he ran, is essentially in crowds, uh, 
with a lot of supporters, and he because he feeds off he feeds yeah. off of his uh, his crowds. I I've, I've been to two of before he was before he was prime minister. I was to two events with him, and I could I could just see where there were you know certainly uh, with, with the second event, which was really on Bay Street with all the Bay Street people, uh, and uh, he was very uncomfortable. <laughs> it, but you, but he gets those young people enthusiastic for the for the liberals and hold sign and and he he just feeds off their energy so he it's uh, like a giant we rally yeah and he, he but he does but the problem with the pandemic he can't do that i mean he came into you know he he, he could do that being you know indoor venues which they can control fill them with the young people uh you know and uh, who are str- strong liberals or at least looking for a little excitement and, and then you could see that excitement on the, the tv the radio you know that comes out of that but with the, with the, you know with the virus he can't really do that because we can't have people cheek to jowl uh, at these type of uh, you know pressed into a big room cheering cheering them. Uh, we're also hearing in the news clips of him being heckled and, and him being booed, even in in Hamilton earlier today. Uh, how does he react when he's not king of the mountain? Can he can he come from behind, or are his faults just more amplified when he falls back? Well, what I've noticed him is that when when he when he knows the audience isn't with him, he becomes very he he becomes stiffer, and he and he then starts to talk too long. Actually, yeah, I think he thinks. You know, if he, he sort of senses, well, maybe if I talk more, I can convince him to come over my way. Well, you know, oftentimes <laughs> talking more just, of course, turns off people rather than than uh, than uh, than talking, uh, following your script. But yeah, he gets up tight. He talks too long. He he, you could just he, and he, you could just see him starting to freeze up there. And I I you know, and and so he he can't he he needs audiences which would just turn him loose, and he just. He just becomes, you know, very, very natural and fluid, and he's just, he just doesn't have those. And the criticisms, uh, yeah, yeah I, we can contrast, you know, by the way, uh, Jagmeet Singh ran into a, a little bit in Toronto when he was in there. I think these were, uh, uh, you know, there were people, you know, were, were upset with him, that his connections with the Sikh community, and we know some people in the Indian community think back of uh, the uh, airplane that went down many years ago that was blamed uh, on a Sikh, on a bomb that uh, someone in the Sikh community had put on that uh, plane, and uh, so uh, the so you know, and he was getting at the edge of the edge of the uh, crowd outside. Uh, was he, you can hear the heckling, although you couldn't hear them very well. But but he didn't seem to be bothered by that. He seemed to be, you know, he was able to get over that. I I I, I was pretty impressed that he didn't. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't thrown off of his message. But when that happened, and but I think Trudeau Trudeau does. Trudeau needs that group. Uh, I think Jagmeet Singh has an inner voice, so he knows. He has. I think he has more confidence. And and Singh really has the ability and and do this right off the cuff of right. just you know anything that anything that the reporters throw at him in regard to a liberal policy. Uh, Singh just says, we've heard all of this before. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, whether it was the housing policy today, he was saying they have, they've had six years to do this. So, uh, you know, sooner or later, the rubber has to meet, uh, meet the road, has to hit the road. Yeah. And, and it certainly appears as if Singh is holding the PM's feet to his, to the fire on that. In other words, you've had the time to do this. Right. And now you're just promising more. That's right. That's, that's his whole argument. I mean, you've been the government for six years. Uh, you know, when you had good policies, we've we've supported them, uh, so we haven't we haven't defeated them. That's Jagmeet Singh talking. 
but so but there's a lot of things he he's you know in terms of promises that the prime minister made that haven't quite been fulfilled yet or you know or problems dealt with that should have been dealt with and then then he points those out and it's certainly i mean we talked last week the, the housing one's an interesting one because at the beginning of the campaign talked last week about i said uh, what surprised me about public opinion at the beginning of the campaign, there was this group, 26%, one quarter of the Canadian population, said the big issue is accessibility to housing. Hmm. And, and so what do we get a week later? We get the liberals reading that public opinion poll, most likely, uh, and, or their own that say the same thing, comes out with this big housing policy. Well, you know, problems have been, you know, accessibility to housing in southern Ontario and in Vancouver and some other places have, have been, has been a problem for years. And now yeah. suddenly they discover it, uh, you know, when the polls show it's there and they're in the election campaign. Well, you can hammer the government saying, where were you all those years? And, and you know, it, it seems that the solution, uh, oh, my goodness, what's the solution here? Uh, we have to come up with a program. We have to come up with some sort of way to help young people. We need to do something about interest rates. We need to do something about the down payment. And, and you know, every uh, uh, expert I've seemed to have on on this issue says it's a supply issue. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is build smart homes and right. smart hoods with transportation and all of such to to, to link it all. Right. Um, you know, it's, and and we you know it, it seems even the prime minister said you know he he mentioned two or three different things in which they could do to falsely stimulate uh, this segment of of uh, of industry yet supply building more houses wasn't on the agenda and we all know the best way to drive a price price of something down is to supply more of it yeah 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 i think you're absolutely right on that and that it, that is clearly a failing there henry jasek has been with us we'll chat again henry uh hey do you think the shorter the shorter campaign is going to have a fa- is going to play into effect here well uh yeah i i don't know i i, I, I normally i would say yes but we've got off to such a hot start here that maybe it doesn't matter how long the campaign is. People are just ready. They, despite what they say, they are really ready to vote and do something seriously here. That, that in fact, uh, they're not as unready as they let on. And uh, so they probably have been thinking about issues all through the, over the last two years and are really now starting to act on them. Good point. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always a blast. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're hearing lots of chatter about a fourth wave, whether we're in it, whether we're not. Uh, obviously, it seems to be a pandemic at this point of the unvaccinated. Uh, we have so far, I guess, new numbers today, 486, 372 of those uh, not fully vaccinated. Um, so that's where we are in Ontario. Also, uh, rumblings yesterday about one of the doctors from the science table leaving, the others saying, hey, this is all going to come out. We just have to uh, finalize and, and verify everything. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert and advisor, uh, lecturer on healthcare systems and policies, and with, is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts here, Ahmad? Uh, you know, uh, we, we've talked about uh, what a fourth wave will look like with the majority of us vaccinated, but we're also hearing rumblings that there's modeling coming in for the fall, and it doesn't look too healthy. Where do you stand on all of this? Well, I don't think it's that surprising. I mean, we expected that come fall time when people are going to be mostly indoors and not as much outdoors as they have been in the summer season, 
that the virus will likely ha- have a higher rate of transmission. And also the schools reopening and the Delta variant being a very transmissible virus, that we are in- expecting an increase in the number of cases. So it's not that much of a surprise that the expectation is the numbers will go up. The question becomes is that can we vaccinate our younger population? Can we increase our vaccination rate above the 60% or average of 60% that they are now at? I want to play this quick report from uh, Jamie Marocker, uh, Global News Health reporter, uh, on this uh, on this fourth wave. There's a consensus across the country: the Delta variant is the fiercest foe yet in this pandemic. Delta variant is very, very contagious. It's already caused COVID-19 cases in British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario to surge. Toronto-based infectious disease physician Allison McGear says if we continue on our current path, by mid-October, the province will hit almost 7,000 cases a day. As cases start to increase and as we see people becoming ill, um, we'll understand clearly that we need to change our behavior. All right, that sounds kind of grim, Omad. How how do we digest that? Well, I think the way we digest it is that we recognize that, you know, although that the Delta variant is highly transmissible, Canada is still doing quite well in terms of its vaccination rates. And so if we keep increasing our vaccination rates, especially in populations that are at high risk, our younger populations, our areas where that there are higher rates of transmission of the virus, and we, uh, you know, make sure that we keep some kind of restrictions in place, we could actually come out of this in a much better phase than we anticipate it will be. So what I'm saying is, is if we continue face, wearing the face masks, if we continue some form of social distancing, uh, and we carefully consider proof of vaccination for public gatherings, then we actually could end up doing quite well. Uh, and boy, and more and more jumping on that uh, on that bandwagon, and it, it looks like it's getting pretty pretty difficult to to live as uh, certainly recreational as a human being without any kind of vaccination. Uh, do you think, as we see more and more, whether it's a sports organization or or, or a union or what have you, uh, are, are suggesting this? And, and, and let's be honest; I mean, it's mandatory unless there are exemptions, which which there always are. Um, as we see that net sort of uh, strengthen are, are are more and more people getting vaccinated? Well, I think, yeah, as we are increasing the mandate on vaccinations in different public institutions throughout the country, we're going to see a, a rise in the number of vaccines. Simply put, um, when people have to show that they have been vaccinated to attend the Blue Jays games or go to a concert or go to a club, that's going to encourage people who are on the fence to go and get vaccinated. And I think also the news yesterday uh, of the FDA in the U.S. approving Pfizer will have a repercussion here in Canada. So because the, there are some people that were waiting on sort of a, another health entity beyond Health Canada in Canada to approve the Pfizer vaccine to say that it is safe uh, for them to actually go get it. And so I think I, I suspect that we're going to see an increase in the number of vaccinations only by mere factor that there are going to be a mandate by many places that you must be vaccinated. And also, overall, the evidence is becoming more and more clear uh, that we have long-term studies now that show the safety of the vaccine. When can we or will we? Because we remember during the first few waves of this, we were always getting modeling. We haven't seemed to ha- have received any of that lately. Do you know when we can expect to, to see that? Well, I think that modeling has not really been proven to be the most useful thing. I think what ended up mm. happening is that people who were behind the modeling have shown that, you know, they didn't always test to be true. The modeling projections caused, in some cases, more chaos than, than informative decision-making by people. 
So I suspect that there's been a, a sort of a push to withhold modeling until we have more confirmative evidence behind it. That is the speculation. It's not confirmative. But I suspect that the fall, come the fall, we will see those modeling numbers come up. Uh, British Columbia, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry on a news conference right now saying that uh, BC will reinstate their mask uh, to be ma- masking uh, policy to be mandatory indoors. Your thoughts? I'm not that surprised. I think they're concerned about the Delta variant in British Columbia and the increase in the case in numbers. British Columbia has been a very different model than the rest of the provinces of Canada. They've had a much more looser lockdown measures than we have in Ontario. And so we suspect that they will go back and forward on this. I mean, if you talk to people who have visited Vancouver recently, they'll tell you that you almost can go anywhere in Vancouver without having to wear a face mask. It's sort of unheard of for us here in Ontario. And I think that given the increase in the case numbers, they're looking at reinstating some of these measures, which we're hearing about today. Uh, do you expect the other provinces like Ontario to follow suit? Yes, I think so. I think that we are looking at those models and saying that, you know, I think it would be smart for provinces to think about the Delta variant as a, a new variant that can present chaos. And so if they look at it with that lens, then what can we do in terms of preparedness? What we don't want to happen is come fall time and for us to be saying, we should have done this to prevent the lockdown. And so I think that Ontario is, you know, that's possibly the reason why we have not expanded our reopening plans. That's possibly the, the explanation that will happen if stricter measures are put into place where we might have to scale down on public gatherings. Uh, and so that's, I think, part of preparedness. I mean, the pandemic is not over. And whoever says otherwise is falsely saying that because the Delta variant have thrown a new curveball. And we don't know if other variants will come about until the world is sort of the entire world has a good grasp over the vaccination rate and the fight against the pandemic. Variants will continue to present themselves. And it becomes a question is how much can we protect ourselves in Canada against the variant and its new format? Uh, many are concerned about the reopening of schools, especially with those under 12 not vaccinated um, at this point. Uh, many are predicting more cases in that age group as a result of this, which I guess is common sense. And that's what we've seen all along as the vaccination started in the older demographics and slowly have moved down. So obviously you're not going to see the infections in the in the higher demographics. You're going to see uh, where there where there isn't any vaccination at this point. Um, that being said, kids traditionally haven't been necessarily the target of, of this virus. How concerned are you that with the kids not being vaccinated, that this is going to set off some sort of domino effect? Well, that is a concern. I think that many uh, public health experts and health health experts have stated over and over again. I think that, you know, if we, if the ventilation systems, the new format and the improvement in schools does hold up to what it's promised to be, uh, teachers are vaccinated, then maybe we won't have a, a complete shutdown of our school systems again. That's only really going to be wait and tell time. So we're going to wait to see what happens in the fall schools to reopen. I mean, it also links to community transmission, Scott. So, you know, the school setting where that in that community, that specific community have high rates of the virus, then it's expected that it will spread in that school. But if it's in a setting that has very controlled numbers, then that's not going to happen, right? And so it's just we're going to have to wait and see how much more can we get our vaccination rates between now and schools reopen, which are very soon. And can we get the younger population convinced again uh, about the safety of the vaccine 
and encouraging them to get them when it's time for them to get it. You talked about how uh, in British Columbia, you know, it appeared that things were more wide open than what they were uh, in Ontario. Uh, obviously, they're feeling secure. Uh, if we are vaccinated, should we still be worrying? Is that what is that what is happening here? People are vaccinated and they're thinking, yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, I'm vaccinated. So uh, problem solved here. Um, it, what is your message to those who are vaccinated? I'll, I'll give them the same message I give myself and my close friends and family, which is that if you are double vaccinated, you know, you, your chance of getting COVID-19 are very, very rare. And if you get COVID-19, then your symptoms, uh, the severity of your symptoms are very mild. I choose to continue to wear a face mask in public and to social distance the best of my ability just to protect others around us. Uh, who might not be vaccinated, and also because I recognize that I play a role in protecting our health system. And by that I mean is that, you know, please, anybody out there listening, know that people, the healthcare staff uh, in hospitals are burned out. You cannot speak to a single healthcare provider in any hospital setting in Ontario now that won't tell you I am Mm. burnt out. And so our choice to continue practicing those strategies to protect the larger population is really not just for us, but for our entire system to function adequately. Many have, as you just did, talk about the uh, Delta variant and how it seems to spread so much more quickly than what we've seen in the past. How concerned are you with the Delta variant and how it affects kids? Is there any reason to believe that it affects the kids uh, any more than, than what we've seen in the first and second waves? There's been some evidence to suggest that you know the kids, and especially in the U.S., that the kids who got the Delta variant have been in the hospital and have led to some ICU admission. However, the evidence is not really conclusive when we haven't looked at it in a large scale. Um, I think what's going to happen with the school's reopening is that we're going to see the Delta variant play a big role, right? Because in the summertime, kids are out and about, they're in public spaces that are outdoors, so and they're mostly with their parents, and so the, the risk of transmission is much lower. However, when you put them now back into indoor settings, that might change the situation. And so I think we're going to be waiting to see what happens come fall time. Uh, do you anticipate with, uh, you know, eight, over 82% of the population with one, uh, with at least one dose anyway, over 72, I think, percent with the second, um, are, are you concerned that in the fall, and again, if you're reading some of this modeling information, it suggests there could be further lockdowns. What are your thoughts on that, Ahmad? I think that if we don't increase our vaccination rate and we and if we abandon all public health strategies to protect yeah. us against the virus, then we're definitely heading to a, some sort of a lockdown. Will it be similar to what we had this past year, which is a very harsh form of a lockdown? I'm not quite sure. The data will have to inform that. And also our policymakers will have to inform that, right? Like the data and the science can say one thing, but our politicians can decide to do something completely opposite. The lockdown measures are not in the hands of public health experts. Uh, they're in the hands of politicians. And so, you know, the evidence will help inform their decisions, but the decision really comes down to them whether they want to move forward with any more further strict lockdowns. Uh, and, and obviously, echoing what you said in regard to keeping up the protocol, but we are in a much different place now uh, than we were in the first wave of this. Is that a naive thing to say? I mean, um Again, the majority of us are still vaccinated. It will be a different wave this time. Is that accurate? I, it is an accurate assessment. I mean, it, it, I will tell you that uh, it's beautiful to be able to walk out in our cities now and see some resemblance of back to normal life. 
Um, and I think that people need to feel that their effort in sticking to the lockdown measures paid dividends. But by that, I mean is that they can go out and experience some kind of normal life as we knew before. So the point I'm trying to make here is that if you've been double vaccinated and you continue to practice some sort of measures, public health intervention, then you should feel like you can have some kind of resemblance to normal life. So, you know, practice the measures according to your lifestyle. You know, I tend to not still not gather in big social gatherings, but I would go out and to a restaurant, for example, because I am double vaccinated. I do wear my face mask. I still, you know, make sure that I practice safe hand hygiene. And so what I'm trying to say here is that the individuals need to be given the authority over their own decision making. And so we present the evidence to the public and the public decides how they want to enact those uh, measures into their own lifestyle. Uh, a little different angle here, Ahmad. You were talking about how, uh, you know, obviously you're in the health industry, you walk the halls, you know what it's like, you know the fatigue. We can imagine how we're, or we know how we're all feeling as a result of this. You can imagine if you are on the front line, uh, earlier reports yesterday about nurses needed and, and, and all this sort of thing. What message do you have to people out there that are thinking of entering? the health industry because it would appear right now if you're looking for a great career uh th- there's lots of help needed what what would you have what would you say to those that are students or not maybe those uh younger adults that are considering a career and see this as as a potential opportunity Scott, you can't see the look on my face because we're speaking over the radio but i have a big smile on my face right now <laughs> as you ask that question because i get asked that question almost daily by my students and so and, and, you know, our frontline staff and, quote, and workers are burned out and are tired. However, I think what I, the advice I give to students is that this is time to, you know, consider how you can play a role in the healthcare system. I think that there is actually an increase in the number of applicants interested in becoming part of the healthcare system, whether it's through nursing, medical schools, or allied healthcare professional programs across the country, because people recognize the important role uh, healthcare providers play in different formats. You know, this is not just physicians. It can be, it crosses this diverse number of people that work and function in our healthcare systems that are integral to the way it actually can sustain a, a crisis like the pandemic and other crises in the future. My advice to the general public is let's not forget the struggles they're facing. I mean, when I speak to my colleagues who are on the front lines, you can tell they are so tired, Scott. They, they've reached a point where they, have, you know, mental and physical exhaustion beyond belief. And because they're so busy taking care of the vulnerable populations out there, many of them are not actually speaking publicly about how tired they are. So we can't forget that. I think it's important for us to continue supporting them. One way we do that is by, you know, continuing to listen to public health advice and how to protect our system, but also to reduce the burden on the healthcare providers by just reducing how many unnecessary visits they are to emergency hospitals or to uh, clinics to just, you know, make sure that people who need the care are getting it. Doctor, despite uh, what this pandemic has done to virtually every segment of the population, we don't need to repeat all of that. One positive thing that you must feel uh, in what you do is that this has finally drawn attention to the healthcare system. It has drawn uh, attention to the weak links in the chain. Uh, and, and, and focused on an industry that doesn't seem to get a lot of attention or didn't up until a pandemic. Absolutely. And, and more, more to your point, Scott, what this crisis has done is it showed us the gaps in our system and ways we can improve it. And so now you'll see that Canada is, is aggressively trying to implement telemedicine across our country. This is remarkable. I think that 
this is exactly what we've been asking for for a long time. So I'm hopeful. You know, I always say there is always a you know, bright sun at the end of the tunnel, which is the tunnel being here, COVID-19, and, and our ability to reform parts of our system that needed reform will happen because the pandemic showed us that we need to address, for example, our public health infrastructure in the country, our ability to respond to a pandemic in a very quick and adequate way. And so I think that we are going to look back at this time and we're going to have a much stronger, resilient health system that's able to face any future crisis that happens in the future. And the re- primarily that happened because all of us played a big role in protecting the system in the past 18 months or so. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, advisor, doctor, and lecturer on health systems and policy. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a great week. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know the situation in Afghanistan and what is happening there as uh, a mass exodus is underway, trying to get uh, uh, Canadians out, embassy staff out, and those uh, interpreters and such that have helped uh, Canadian forces uh, over the years. And this is something that uh, a lot of countries are doing, including uh, the United States. As a result of all of this, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, British Prime Minister, called a G7 meeting for today to discuss the situation. What can those G7 leaders do? Let's bring in John Curtin, Director of the G7 Research Group of the University of Toronto, Founder and Co-Director of G20 Research Group and Interim Director of the International Relations Program, and with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. hope you are, too, in uh, Hamilton and beyond. Uh, interesting to be a fly on the wall of this meeting. What are they discussing? What can the G7 leaders do? Uh, well, the G7 leaders can do a lot more uh, than they agreed to do uh, at their uh, special summit today uh, and that they uh, revealed uh, in the communique they released at the uh, end. Uh, what they and the communique did uh, was um, specify what they would like to see happen uh, in Afghanistan uh, as the uh, days and uh, weeks and uh, years unfold. Um, But uh, they said uh, rather little about what they will do uh, or prepared to do uh, to make it uh, happen. Uh, So they um, started uh, with the understandable focus on the immediate issue, ensuring the safety and security of vulnerable uh, Afghan and international citizens. That's the evacuations. Uh, And then uh, the prevention of a uh, humanitarian um, crisis. And then thirdly, I went on to uh, say, um, please respect uh, human rights law, the rights of uh, women, girls, minority uh, groups, uh, all very good things. But they were just calling on someone to adhere to it, uh, rather than saying uh, what they were prepared to do uh, to make sure uh, the Taliban regime uh, did. Why do you think that is, John? Do you think that's uh, because they're playing their cards close to their chest, don't want to reveal too much, or do you think they're just saying something because they have to say something here? Um, It's a little of the um, keeping their cards uh, close to the chest. Um, It's more uh, the fact that... uh, this summit was called so uh, quickly, uh, organized so quickly, uh, and events uh, on the ground uh, in and around the uh, Kibble uh, airport are happening uh, so quickly uh, that, um, you know, within the uh, hours after the communique uh, comes out, the situation uh, might uh, importantly 
chained, for example, like if um, an ISIS terrorist um, uh, in the crowd um, actually kills uh, a United States uh, military a member, part of the 6,000 uh, guarding uh, the perimeter, uh, then things would uh, indeed um, change. Uh, but part of it, I think, are um, divisions amongst G7 uh, members, and quite fundamental ones. The most obvious one is the uh, firm uh, repeated commitment by uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden of the United States, Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, uh, that all of his military forces uh, will be out um, by uh, August um, 31st, whether or not they have uh, by then, along with everybody else, quote, ensured the safety and security of vulnerable uh, Afghan and international um, citizens. Uh, but beyond that, there are uh, deep um, divisions uh, amongst um, G7 uh, members over um, refugees uh, and uh, the uh, resettlement about which uh, almost nothing uh, was said in the um, communique. Uh, we do know that uh, separately, individually, uh, the Prime Minister of Italy, uh, Mario Draghi, has said he wants the whole world uh, to organize a common immigration um, policy uh, to deal with the uh, new exodus of um, Afghani uh, refugees. Uh, he's probably saying Italy uh, will take almost uh, no more uh, one remembers the uh, haunting phrase, uh, none is uh, too many, because, mm -hmm. of course, they were on the front line, still are, of all the migrants coming over the uh, Mediterranean right. uh, and uh, got their fair share, um, although Germany was in the lead, of all uh, the many um, flowing uh, from Syria uh, into uh, the rich uh, EU uh, countries only a few short um, years uh, ago. Uh, Canada, of course, uh, admirably has much greater uh, tolerance uh, and need um, for uh, securing um, refugees of uh, the sort uh, of the Afgan Afghanis who desperately want to uh, leave. And uh, I think we've uh, had a signal uh, from Justin Trudeau that he's going to accept um, many more than the uh, pitifully uh, small um, 20,000. Uh, that um, his relevant minister um, announced that just a few days uh, ago. But um, those with long memories uh, will remember uh, the admirable initiative of uh, the Right Honorable Joe Clark uh, when Afghanistan um, was um, had its uh, precursor uh, when Saigon and Vietnam fell. It was the Indochina boat people um, then, Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, Canada took uh, a magnificent um, number with the government matching uh, whatever private Canadian citizens uh, said uh, they would do. And it was a lot. We haven't seen anything uh, like that um, yet. So um, a bit um, behind the curve um, so far, but it's, uh, it's a very quickly moving situation. You talked about the deadline to get uh, to to evacuate out of Afghanistan. August thirty first is the deadline. Now there is chatter uh, of extending that. Uh, Biden has talked about that, uh, but I believe the Taliban has said no. That's a hard deadline. Who decides if the deadline is extended or not? 
Well, uh, it does take uh, two sides to a tango, and clearly uh, the decision um, about uh, our side coming in or out uh, should be a collective decision of um, uh, members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, uh, NATO, uh, because 50 um, countries uh, contributed um, troops in one way uh, or another, uh, some in support roles, uh, to the coalition um, fighting uh, the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan. So there's a lot of countries with troops uh, just beyond the United States, and the 6,000 it's got uh, guarding the perimeter of uh, the Kabul um, airport um, as we uh, speak. Um, the Taliban, of course, uh, on the uh, other side, um, and they say, uh, go and get out. So the question is, uh, why do they want them uh, out? What will they start to do, you know, the minute after uh, all of the uh, international uh, troops are um, gone? Um, and it's yet another deal. Um, uh, the Taliban is um, putting on a, a friendly a face at the uh, moment, right? That, that's, I was going to ask you about that, John, because we certainly, uh, you know, the days after uh, Afghan fell into the, the hands of the Taliban, we saw the charm offensive start. And the next thing you know, there was a news conference and these men were telling us all how it was going to be uh, different. It seems odd that there's a charm offensive yet still a hard deadline of August 31st, especially if you're trying to drive enemy or what were allied enemy troops, whatever you want to call them, out of your country. Why not release, why, why not extend the deadline? That doesn't bode well with the charm offensive, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, and if, in fact, um, uh, the international um, uh, forces, the governments, uh, cannot get all of their uh, key personnel uh, out, uh, their diplomats, other military forces, uh, those who uh, work uh, for them, um, why not, like uh, any student in any university, uh, ask for an extension? Could I have another day or uh, two? Uh, yeah. Taliban, uh, why uh, not? Uh, but on um, what lies behind your uh, question, uh, follow the geography. It's in those areas that were the first and fullest to uh, fall to uh, the Taliban um, several uh, weeks uh, ago now. Um, that we're uh, hearing uh, reports that it is there. Um, you know, uh, Afghani citizens are um, being told to hand over their daughters um, so they can marry um, Taliban um, fighters. Uh, that um, uh, girls, um, well, uh, don't come to a school uh, on whatever um, pretext. Uh, so the longer and stronger uh, the Taliban have been in charge, uh, the more repressive uh, is um, the treatment, the more it looks like uh, the old um, Taliban uh, regime uh, is uh, already coming back or, or indeed has come back. Uh, so it's the uh, presidential palace uh, in Kabul at the airport. Um, that's the uh, latest and the lowest uh, the Taliban is in charge. That's where um, the face they're putting on is uh, the friendliest. Uh, but certainly uh, all the many um, tens of thousands, or probably uh, hundreds of thousands of Afghanis who desperately want to get out, uh, they're the ones that should know uh, best, and they don't trust the Taliban at all. They're voting with their uh, feet. 
So is from a world perspective, is it about is it better to let this uh, this mass exodus happen in this country or try to control this like they've been doing for the last 20 years? Uh, This is a no win situation. On the whole, um, I think it's um, an obligation uh, and uh, probably beneficial uh, for the international uh, community uh, to be there. Uh, no, to uh, get out every uh, Afghani citizen in Afghanistan who wants to get out and become a permanent resident. Uh, than so what is left, John, what is left of Afghanistan after after that? Is it just, because again, I was thinking about that, like, you know, you're, you're getting, you, you know, the people who are fearing for their lives, let's be honest, the brightest, the most educated are getting the heck out. What does that leave for Afghanistan? Is it just a country of terror? I mean, it's been labeled as that over the years, graveyard or whatever. I mean, there's lots of terms, but is, is that what is left for Afghanistan? Uh, some of them, some significant portion of the new Afghanis in the new Afghanistan, uh, those uh, aged up to uh, 20, uh, right, uh, born on um, 9-11. And afterwards, yeah. uh, they will stay and try and uh, build um, the new uh, Afghanistan, uh, working with, um, it's a uh, highly um, federal um, country, although uh, federalism in the Canadian year doesn't uh, really describe it uh, well. Uh, It's um, different tribes, uh, different uh, regions, uh, not all of whom are equally enthusiastic about taking orders uh, from uh, Kabul, um, from the um, Taliban, and that's why the Taliban had to rely uh, before on such uh, viciously oppressive uh, measures. So when you put together... um, the continuing Afghani um, feudalism, plus the uh, many um, millions of new Afghanis uh, up to age 20 who will stay, uh, you do have the basis uh, for forcing upon the um, Taliban uh, leaders uh, today, forcing them um, to uh, produce, over time, a more uh, inclusive and less repressive Afghani government if their neighbors, that's Pakistan, that's China, uh, right across the border, and of course uh, Russia, uh, play ball. So what the uh, G7 has had to say, uh, we're waiting to hear about uh, whether or not China and uh, Russia, above all, uh, will go along. Does China and Russia, their interests here, obviously we've heard that there's some uh, natural resources there that that they might be interested in. Uh, that being said, how does China and Russia view this? Do they do they care? Uh, are they concerned about terror, or do they think it's just a problem for the West? Uh, well, they're scared uh, in the first instance. Uh, China um, is engaging in uh, massive uh, repression in its uh, far um, uh, flung uh, regions uh, where its Muslim uh, minority yeah. uh, lives. Uh, so they're really scared uh, that a Taliban um, devout Muslims, uh, perhaps uh, with ISIS and Al-Qaeda within, uh, will uh, give aid and comfort um, to uh, the Chinese uh, Muslim community uh, and even help them incite terrorist uh, incidents there. So their deal with uh, the Taliban uh, will be a lot You've got to absolutely a promise not to do that. 
um, and not take uh, any refugees uh, fleeing from Chinese or oppression across the border. And only then will we uh, give you a full diplomatic uh, recognition and what flows from um, that. Uh, Russia, of course, um, has a somewhat uh, similar, if uh, less pronounced, uh, problem. Um, Mr. Putin, of course, uh, faced a massive um, domestic insurrection in Chechnya, uh, and his uh, Muslim uh, majority uh, parts of the uh, country. So he has to worry about um, that, um, too. Uh, so it's not a uh, pure play. Uh, Russia has uh, far more mineral resources uh, of its own it wants to uh, sell and doesn't want a uh, Chinese-financed um, Afghani a competitor uh, stealing its uh, markets uh, abroad. So it's uh, unclear if they follow both their fears and their offensive interests, how China and um, Russia, and then, of course, um, India, the other um, big country close by, how they all come down on this. John Curtin with us, director of the G7 Research Group with the University of Toronto, founder and co-director of the G20 Research Group and interim director of international relations programs, University of Toronto. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, you too. Pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Sad news. Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts has passed away at the age of 80. You might remember uh, when the Stones were uh, talking about their next tour through the United States uh, that Charlie Watts would not be joining them. Steve Jordan, I believe, was uh, filling in for him. And now we uh, we find out that, in fact, he has passed away. Alan Cross is with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. With us now, Alan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well uh yeah here we go we're we're approaching that period of time or we're maybe already in it where we're seeing this mass extinction of people that we've always known as musical heroes and uh i you know i really didn't see the charlie thing coming although you're right it was uh odd that he wouldn't be touring with the stones uh he hadn't missed a gig since he joined the band in january 1963 what do we know about his illness? I understand he had suffered some issues with cancer back in the 80s. Do we know anything about this current illness? Well, there were some substance abuse problems in the 80s that he beat. He stopped smoking in the 1980s, probably around the same time. He had a cancer issue, a throat cancer issue, that resulted in some surgery, some chemo, and some radiation treatments in 2004. But if you compare him to the rest of the Rolling Stones, he is relatively the, was relatively the healthiest. Mm. We do know that he had some sort of unspecified yet apparently successful medical procedure earlier this summer. But for whatever reason, on August the 4th, he announced that he would not be touring with the Stones this fall, which, you know, a big shock. Like I said, January 1963, talk about, you know, an Iron Man. Uh, and then when the announcement came out today that, that he died, it was like, wait, what? What happened? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. He was in the hospital, so it sounds like it could be complications from whatever it was that he had the surgery for. I know you're a busy guy today, Alan, and everybody's pulling at your arm, so I just want to take the last couple of minutes here. Uh, talk about his style, because this was, you know, man, when you see this band live, they were hard-hitting, they sounded loud, they were whatever, but Charlie was a very finesse drummer. I mean, it was almost as if there was another person out there, up there making all of that noise. 
Charlie was the cesium atomic clock of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Mick and Mick and Keith and Ronnie could go off and do whatever they wanted to do and be as sloppy or as improvisational as they wanted to, knowing that the safety net of Charlie Watts rhythm was always there. He was as dependable as 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 could be. So that allowed them to do all these these crazy, goofy, great things. Uh, and, and, and Charlie, you know, he wasn't flashy, but he was steady and he was very tasteful. Uh, mm. if you go back through, you know, some of the Rolling Stones greatest songs, you have to listen for what he's doing. It's not, you know, in your face, but you can't imagine those songs being played any other way because they were done with a certain style. You know, he was such a jazz fan. He was such an yeah. R&B fan that, that he brought all that to, to the Stones. He was the most conventional of all the musicians in the band, and and that's exactly what they needed. You could always depend on Charlie to be there to do the right thing uh, and to be very, very steady and let everybody else be the showman, be the flamboyant type. Any comments from the rest of the band? The show must go on. Do we know what happens now? We don't know. Um, the tour was going to go ahead. It was booked. The Stones, you know, from a purely mercenary business point of view, you know, they did cancel last year when Mick had his problems, uh, or it was two years ago, when Mick had his problems with his heart. Uh, they mm. were going to tour, but then COVID hit, and now they've got all these makeup dates to, to go through. I, I would imagine that they'll, they'll continue with them. Steve Jordan was already rehearsing with them and is already going to go ahead and do it. But it's not going to be the same because, you know, there was Dower Charlie at the back of the, uh, back of the stage yeah. holding things down. And now, you know, we, we're down to two original stones. We're down to Mick and Keith, and that's it. Good point. It's going to be fascinating to see how this band moves on, especially when many thought that, uh, boy, they would have hung it up long ago. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing History of New Music. Uh, thanks for fitting us in on a busy day, Alan. We appreciate it. Be well. You're, you're welcome. I'm going to bring in Derek Sardo, uh, I think the biggest Rolling Stones fan I know. Uh, Derek Sardo is the president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca. Uh, we often have him on to talk about techno- uh, technology issues, and then somehow we always get moved to the Rolling Stones, because I don't think there's a person that has seen them any more than this guy has uh derek is with us now derek thanks for the time hope you're doing well i'm doing well it's a sad day for all of us how many times have you seen this band well i don't know between 40 and 50 potentially uh maybe even 60 i'm not sure uh lots of times so uh your thoughts when you heard the news i think this took a lot of people by surprise many thought he was recovering uh wouldn't be on tour uh steve jordan filling in but then would be back did this surprise you yeah absolutely the even the uh press press releases were you know he's he's had his whatever and we didn't know what it was and we still don't but um but we he's recovering nicely that he was successful apparently not so successful what do you think will happen? And we're all speculating at this point. Moving forward, uh, obviously, Steve Jordan is more than a competent drummer, but I, I just had uh, Alan Cross on, host of the ongoing history of new music. We're down to two original Rolling Stones, which, you know, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, they are they are the main, but certainly uh, Charlie was a backbone. Do you see this band moving forward? Well, the Who has done it. Uh, yeah, they, good point. still doing it with two. Um, I can't, uh, and yes, the, the main draw is, uh, is Keith and Mick for sure. However, Charlie is that backbone. Like you said, he's, uh, he's that sort of class in the band. He's always been that he's always been yeah. that, um, straight laced, but fu- really funny guy. 
but straight laced and dressed well and uh, always put a good front on for the band. But yeah, that's going to be missed for sure. Uh, what I loved about this guy, as you said, he was always sort of the very distinguished English gentleman. Uh, and, and I remember I, I've been fortunate enough to see him a couple of times uh, on stage. And, you know, you're just you're just blown away by the sound and, and the bigness of all of this. And Charlie's up there and he's looking like he's barely moving. You talked about the who, Keith Moon, all those old days, you know, bah, 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 bah. you know, the kits literally flying off the stage. They're hitting them. Thing, they're hitting them so hard. Whereas Charlie was very much a finesse drummer. Well, he, he, he's uh, based in the uh, roots of jazz, so yeah, uh, th- that's really where it started, and that's where he kept that influence through the Stones throughout. Um, and, and even if you look at the, the later albums, um, that jazz uh, sound comes through uh, big time. But you're right; he wasn't a he wasn't a John Bonham. He wasn't a Keith Moon. He, he was uh, just on time, like crazy on time, and he was perfect. Uh, even when he went into the disco era with the four by fours, and yeah, uh, you know, he he uh, he really evolved the band in in many different uh, avenues from blues for sure. Uh, did many thought that this band would not last as long as it did, considering the personnel changes, the ongoing fighting, which, you know, we heard a lot of during the heydays of all of this. You know, when you look back at historic rock and roll bands, um, I- I'm not sure that we would have picked the Rolling Stones to be watching still in their 70s or 80, in the case of Charlie. Well, really, who wants to go see a band when they're 70 or 80? But, but Mick Jagger, <laughs> that, that lead man, he's just so entertaining yeah and it's incredible for his age and and uh and the shape he's in uh to be able to do that and and not just an hour concert but three hour concert yeah uh it, it's really it's really amazing that they they lasted the test of time and of course they've always said you know they're like family families fight but they always stay together and mick and keith have fought vehemently through two years but uh they're they're still uh, they're still brothers for sure. Do you think uh, this? Do you think they will eventually? Well, obviously they'll eventually wind it down. Do you think that this will be it for them? That this is sort of a, a line in the sand. I mean, obviously I think they got a lot of contract obligations because of the canceling of the filter tour and, and COVID and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think they'll go ahead and, and move forward with that since it, it appears everything's already in place. But what about moving forward after that? Well, I think the driving force would be uh, Ronnie and and uh, and Keith. They love music. They love doing it, um, and I think they'll I think they'll continue. I, I can't I can't imagine they'll stop. I think the the Steve Jordan edition will be great, um, and uh, they will just keep rolling as they've done before. Um, I I don't see it stopping. I have a story about uh, you know I, I I met the the guys quite a few times and. Um, I have a story that was always told about Charlie, and right. it's the best story. It's the it's the one where uh, uh, Mick is drunk in the middle of the night, calls up Charlie and says, "Where's my drummer?" And so Charlie hangs up the phone. He puts he has a shower, he shaves, he puts on a nice suit, and he walks over uh, to Mick's hotel room and he punches him right in the face, <laughs> and, he, and he says, "I'm not your drummer, you're my singer." 
there were quite a few stories that there were recording sessions set up that never materialized. Or, you know, I can think of one from, um, uh, what's his name, from the Mamas and the Papas. It was supposed to get together with uh, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. And, you know, again, they'd all get the call in the middle of the night. All right, engineers, whatever, let's get to this, uh, you know, the studio. And then, unfortunately, if the drugs didn't come in, then the whole thing was off. The whole thing was off. Well, many a time as a as a kid growing up, I would get the insight to saying the Stones were going to do this here or that there, and uh, we would take the chance to go and be ready. And a lot of times it didn't happen. The last time it was at the uh, uh, the Drake uh, Hotel in in Toronto, yeah. and it didn't materialize. But but they have materialized for us in the past, uh, uh, and we've seen some wicked concerts like the Phoenix Concert Theater. And my favorite is the Palais Royale. Mick, Mick and Keith were on a stage maybe a foot high right there. I mean, we could touch them. And it was only about 250 civilians and maybe 250 stars. It was during the film festival, the TIFF uh, in Toronto. Um, everybody was there. Like, you couldn't have, Anybody you named was there, and uh, I was lucky to be there. And I'll never forget that as long as I live. When was that? What year? That would have been 2004. Right. So still very much uh, active and in their prime. Absolutely. And it was one it's of funny. the hottest it's amazing you can, record. It's amazing you can say that with a band that's in their 70s, even at that point. Uh, yeah. it, it'll be fascinating to see how they move forward. And again, you know, still putting out new music, too. Which, you know, we remember they released that, I think it was Ghost Town, during the, the beginning of the pandemic, which is phenomenal. I enjoy that song, and they they have a, a, a wicked blues album from three or four years ago, which is really roots blues, but awesome music. Uh, yeah, you, you know that the, the catalog speaks for itself, the longevity speaks for itself, and I don't quite think they're done. If we look through history, and you know uh, Brian Jones' death now it's before my time, but uh, you know they replaced him with Ronnie, um, uh, Bill Wyman moving on, they replaced him with Daryl Jones. Mm. You know, they, they've just done that over the years. So I don't think they're done. Again, how can I say that? They're going to all turn 80 very soon, and uh, that's, that's pretty old to be rocking and rolling in a, in a venue of uh, 60,000 people. That's the thing, too. It's like it's not at small clubs. It's at giant stadiums. I mean, what other band can do that? It's, it's incredible when you think about it, whether you like them or not. Uh, Derek Serta with us, president of Rolling Thunder, thunder.ca for all your uh, technology needs and such. And, of course, if you want to just jaw about the Rolling Stones. Derek, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care, guys. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. I'm going to start this again. Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show Podcast.